The wonders of technology. Yeah, PQ River here. And it's another overnight scape central. And uh, yeah, technology is keeping me cool in the heat. It's an exciting week. I mean, uh, coming up is the big Frank Nora Summit meeting. So I'm just full of adrenaline. I almost forgot to do the show. I'm just so excited. And technology will make everything and all the wonderment possible and that's what we're talking about this time around and uh, I think let's take a quick look here to make sure as to uh, who we will be hearing from but of course our Frank Edward Nora is in the house as to be expected and uh, we're going to hear from uh, Dave in Kentucky and we're going to hear from Frank Edward Nora, and we're going to hear from Jed Bowers, all in this one uh, wonderful, thrill-packed episode. And um, uh, let's see what uh, Dave in Kentucky uh, will add to the conversation. Thanks, PQ. You know, I regretted that I didn't uh, get around to submitting a segment for the Central that you had on robots, but... You know, I get a second chance now because uh, technology um, would cover robots. So I get a second chance. I've heard that opportunity only knocks once, but, you know, they also say that the postman always rings twice. So who do you believe? Anyway, there's this uh, memorable robot story. At least I think it's memorable. It's by Robert Block. Uh, that's block with a CH, not a CK. So maybe it should be pronounced Bloch, which might be appropriate since he wrote a lot of horror stories and novels. The most famous novel of which is probably Psycho because of uh, the movie version that Hitchcock made. But Bloch wrote in other genres too, uh, including science fiction. And when in 1949, the editors of an anthology called My Best Science Fiction Story asked 25 writers to pick one of their own stories for inclusion, Block selected a story called Almost Human that was originally published in a pulp magazine called Fantastic Adventures uh, back in 1943 and published under one of Block's pen names, Tarleton Fisk. After it was anthologized, it was adapted for radio by George Lefferts and was broadcast on Dimension X in 1950. Then it was later produced again using the same script on X-1 in 1955. I have both those shows in my old-time radio collection, but the X-1 version is by far the best as far as uh, audio quality goes. So... uh, I'll be uh, using that show for the clips I'm going to play later. I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'll uh, just set the scene and then we'll jump right into the action and, and, and skip over the dull parts. So here's the setup. A suave, smooth-talking crook named Duke, on the run from the law, gets in touch with his former girlfriend, Lola Williams, who is working as a live-in domestic servant at the home of the elderly Professor Blasserman, whose secret experiments in robotics and artificial intelligence have led to the creation of Junior, an eight-foot-tall mechanical man with a blank slate of a brain, a tabula rasa. With Lola's help, 
the professor has been patiently educating Junior, raising him up like a human child. But the situation changes when Duke turns up on the professor's doorstep, reveals that he knows all about Junior, and demands to see him. This is the nursery. Where is Junior? In the next room, behind the door with a panel in it. Very considerately furnished. Another goose figures on the walls, blackboard, toy blocks, panda, bunny rabbit doll. <laughs> Touching. All right, let's see him. You can look through the panel. believed it. Junior isn't very pretty, is he? I was not concerned with aesthetics. Why do you hide him? Is he dangerous? The world is not yet ready for such a thing. Besides, I must study. As you can see by his play, he is very young, hardly out of the cradle. I am educating him. With nursery rhymes? The brain is undeveloped. It must learn its behavior patterns like any infant. You call that eight-foot monster an infant? Physically, of course, he'll never change. He is built of chrome steel and glass. But his brain, that is my wonderful instrument. Unlike a human, he has no heritage, no basic instincts such as love or hate. These he has yet to learn. In some respects, he is like a blank tablet. What is written upon the tablet will remain. You mean he has no feelings? He will learn quickly. And now, if your curiosity is satisfied... I trust you will keep my secret. If anyone discovers... Open the door. I beg your pardon. The door, Professor. Very well. Junior, come here. What a monster. He talks? Yes. Mentally, he's about six years old now. What is it, son? Who is that man, Papa? Let me handle this. You may call me Duke, son. I've come to see you. That's nice. Nobody ever comes to see me except Lola. Play with me, Duke. Certainly, Junior. Oh, uh, and Professor. Yes? While we're playing, you can have Lola and Miss Williams prepare my room. Your room? I forgot to tell you. I've decided to stay. Until the climate changes and I can go out again. Meanwhile, I'll have a chance to play blocks with Junior. Understand? I begin to understand. You are hiding from the law. As you wish. All right, Junior. Your move. Let's build a bridge. I have a better idea, Junior. What? Let's build a coffin. A coffin? I don't know that word. Then I'll teach you, Junior. I can see the professor has been neglecting the moral side of your education very sadly. You shouldn't have come here, Duke. Why not, my dear? Afraid of me? No, afraid of myself. You're no good for me. You've always brought me trouble. Except this time. This time it will be different, darling. This time I'll bring you diamonds. 
Duke, what have you been teaching that thing? Nothing, honey. I've just been playing with him. Very educational. I don't believe you. What's bothering you, Lola? Today when I walked in there, he said to me, I know how to kill people, Lola. I'll kill you if you want me to. He's learning very quickly. Duke, I'm scared of that thing. It's unholy, a machine that acts like a human with a voice grinding at you, saying things you'd expect from a child. You dislike him so much. Why did you take this job as his nursemaid? Because I wanted to start over again. I answered an ad. The professor didn't ask questions. I I would have been all right, too, if you hadn't come along. I'm very glad you did tell me, darling. Because Junior is going to make us two very successful people. Ha. Like any child, Junior listens to what he's told. Duke, I don't know what you're teaching, Junior. But I can guess. And it isn't right. It's evil. Now, right on the blackboard, Junior. My name is Junior. My name is Junior... People are evil. People are evil. Evil must be destroyed. Evil must be destroyed. The professor is evil. The professor is evil. The professor must... What are you doing? I want you to keep out of the nursery, professor. Go away. You... You don't even remember me. I know you. You are the professor... You want to keep me as your slave? You didn't tell me that people are evil. People are not evil. People are evil. They must be destroyed. Stop it! I am not a child any longer. No, you're not a child. You're a monster. Junior? Yes, Duke? The time is now, Junior. Yes, Duke? Keep away from me. Junior! Junior, don't do it! Listen to me! Junior, listen to me! I did it, Duke. Duke, I... Oh, horrible. Can we go away now, Duke? I don't like it here anymore. Duke, why did you do it? The professor was in the way. We'll have to move very quickly now, Lola. We? Because if you don't plan to come along, just say so. I can have Junior write your name on his blackboard. Where are we going? We'll go to Charlie's. With Junior? With Junior. Oh, Duke, you can't. I'm afraid. Relax, my dear. The Duke has great plans for you two. Wouldn't you like to be independently wealthy for the rest of your life? No cares, no worries. Just good times and fine clothes all the time. The only way you get that way is by inheriting a million. Not when you have a fellow like Junior around. I'm still afraid of him. Junior wouldn't hurt you. You wouldn't hurt Lola, would you, Junior? I like Lola. She's pretty. There, you see? He thinks you're pretty. Junior's growing up. So they go to Charlie's, who's one of Duke's gang members, and Duke gets Charlie to case a payroll job for him. At, at, at which point it becomes clear what Duke has in mind for Junior. Uh, Junior pulls off this uh, armored car robbery single-handedly because uh, bullets just bounce off of him, and he's able to uh, 
break into the armored cars and, and, and kill the guards with his bare hands. He's, he's both an immovable object and an irresistible force. And Charlie is freaked out by the whole thing, and he makes the mistake of letting Duke know that. Jeez. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. Duke, we've got to quit this. What's the matter, Charlie? Getting shaky? The papers say he killed all four drivers. Listen, Duke, that robot is hot. We've got to get rid of it. Stop your blubbering. One more good robbery. You ain't going to pull another one. Why not? Count me out, Duke. The law is going to track that baby. Are you quite finished, Charlie? you got no heart, Duke. You're, you're like Junior, all steel inside. And you're just a big, warm-hearted slob. I suppose flowing with the milk of human kindness. Well, I got nerves. I can't stand that thing, the way it looks at you with that, that iron face and clanking around all the time. Listen, here it comes. Hello, Junior. Hello, Duke. I've been talking to Charlie. Yes, Duke. You know what I think, Junior? I think Charlie's yellow. You know what happens to people who turn yellow, don't you? Yes, Duke. Tell them. They're evil. We have to destroy them. You see, Charlie? Junior doesn't like people who sing to the police. Uh, Duke, wait a minute. You know I'd never turn stoolie or anything like that. I never sang to the coppers in my life. You can count Junior. on me. I, yes, I don't want no trouble Duke. with you. Stop him. I, I wouldn't... Yes, Duke. Duke! I stopped him, Duke. All right. Take him down to the cellar. Duke, that not... Charlie! Junior, put him down. Take him down to the cellar, Junior. Yes, Duke. Duke. Relax, darling. Stop shaking. Duke, we can't stay here. Charlie's going to be missed. He's got friends. Now we'll have the gangs after us, too. Oh, come on now. Don't worry, darling. The Duke will take care of everything. Where are you going? Out to a travel agency to get some tickets. You and I are going to take a trip, Lola. You're leaving me alone here? Junior's here, too. It's just it. It's being alone with that thing. Duke, I got the jitters. Now, don't you worry. In 48 hours, you and I will be on our way to Switzerland with $500,000 worth of loot. What about Junior? Junior will be... Taken care of. How can you get rid of him? Junior will do anything I say. So I'll merely have him get into the furnace and sit there while I fill it with oil and set fire to it. Too bad the professor couldn't have stayed around to see him growing up. He's almost a man now, Junior is. But not quite as clever as a man. You'll find that out after he steps into the furnace. Get rid of Junior now, Duke. Before you leave. There's no time. I'll be back about eight. Duke, please... And be nice to Junior while I'm gone. Don't show him you're afraid of him. Goodbye, darling. Goodbye, Duke. Lola. What? Junior. Oil me. Can't you wait till Duke gets back? He always oils you. I want you to oil me, Lola. All right. I like you to oil me, Lola. Yes, Junior. Lola, do you like Duke? Certainly. 
Do you like me? Well, you know I do, Junior. Lola? What? Who do you like best? Me or Duke? I like you both, Junior. Yes, but who do you love? What do you know about love, Junior? In the books, man and woman love. No. Lola? What? Do you think anyone will ever love me? Maybe. Some women can fall in love with anything, Junior. Even with something like Duke. Why, Lola? I don't know. Maybe because... Well, as long as she thinks her man is the smartest and the strongest. I see. Where are you going? To wait for Duke. He won't be home for a while. I'll sit in the hall and wait for him. All right, Junior. I want to be alone and think. About what? I read in a book today it was bad to kill people. What does that mean, bad? Bad. I don't know, Junior. I guess it's just a word. Well, she really missed an opportunity there. (laughs) All she had to do was tell him that bad meant the same thing as evil, and things would have turned out totally different. You know, it would have been like, my name is Junior, Killing is evil, and I have killed people, so I am evil. Evil must be destroyed, so I must kill myself. But killing is evil, so I must not kill myself. But I am evil, and evil must be destroyed. Then he would start to smoke, and his head would start spinning around and around, and eventually it would just explode. Too bad Star Trek hadn't come around yet. It wouldn't come around till the following decade. If if Lola had just had a chance to watch Captain Kirk in action for a few episodes, she'd have known exactly how to handle this. you, Junior. Why are you sitting in the dark? I was waiting for you, Duke. Well, now that's a good boy, Junior. Lola oiled me. That's nice. I'll tell you what, Junior. I've got a little job for us down in the cellar. Let's go down there. Now, Duke. Right now, Junior. All right, Duke. Are we going away soon, Duke? Yes, Junior. We're going away. What's in the cellar, Duke? A little surprise for you, Junior. You'll find out. Recorded dance music. 
Duke? Is that you, Duke? I thought I heard Duke come in. He came in. Where is he? Down in the cellar. What's he doing? Nothing. Did he say he'd be up soon? No. Maybe you'd better go down and get him. He's dead. Oh, no. No, he isn't dead. You said the woman loves the strongest and the smartest... Well, I'm stronger and smarter. But you aren't human. I'm almost human, Lola. No. No, stay away. Lola. Don't touch me. Those metal paws. No. I love you, Lola. No. No. I love no, no, you. No. No. I... No. No. Yeah, she's screwed. <laughs> all me, Lola. I like when you all me. That always cracks me up. How'd they get that past the censors? I'm glad they did, though, because I think it's a, it's a really good story. Very entertaining. But not everybody agrees with me. One review I found called Junior the most creepily lascivious robot ever. And it called um, Almost Human, quote, a truly terrible story by someone who is normally perceived to be a great author, Robert Block. I suspect Block chose the pseudonym for this one because it is so bad, unquote. Now, does that mean that the pseudonym is so bad, Tarleton Fisk, or does it mean that the story is so bad that he used a pseudonym? Probably the latter. But I, I would just point out that Block published under a, a bunch of different pen names, not just Tarleton Fisk. He also used uh, Will Folk, Nathan Hendon, E.K. Jarvis, Wilson Kane, Jim Kelgard, John Sheldon, Collier Young, and even Sherry Malone. I don't know if he was writing romances or what, but anyway... He was pretty prolific, and he wanted to avoid competing with himself. And if a publisher had, you know, like three Robert Block stories under consideration, he might only pick the one he liked the best and pass on the other two. But if the three stories came in under three different names, each story would get considered on its own merits, and, and he might end up uh, accepting two or even all three of them. Besides, if Block had been embarrassed about writing Almost Human, he, he certainly wouldn't have picked it for the My Best Science Fiction Story anthology. Although it's true that he didn't write nearly as many science fiction stories as he did horror stories, um, so maybe he didn't have as much to choose from, but the introduction he wrote for the anthology makes it clear that he thought very highly of the story, or at least he did in 1949. His intro is very scholarly, and after a passing nod to the influence of Carol Chapik, he traces the basic concept of the robot back to much earlier sources, both literary and legendary, ranging, and I quote, from TikTok of Oz to the Gollum, 
from Friar Bacon's talking head to the Talos of Grecian mythology. There is also a highly interesting concept found in a perennial bestseller in which, as I vaguely recall, somebody created a man in his own image from a handful of dust. Unquote. Or as I prefer to say, they created a man in their own image from the common clay of already existing native species. <laughs> Shameless plug for my sermon series. Well, Block goes on to tell how he chose to ignore what he calls routine science fiction treatments and chose instead, this is a quote, to model the tale on the plan of that perennial bestseller. Unquote. The bestseller is the Bible, of course, and since Block was of Jewish ancestry but went to a Methodist church, oddly enough, he was familiar with both Jewish and Christian teachings and traditions. That Gollum that he mentioned, for example, comes from Jewish folklore. It's kind of like a zombie, except it's never been alive. It's just formed from some inanimate material. See, zombies are reanimated, but golems are animated for the first time after being formed from clay or mud or whatever. Kind of the way God is said to have created Adam, or the way the professor created Junior. Now, if we take Bloch's word that almost human is based on Genesis, then the professor must represent Yahweh. And Junior is Adam, of course. Duke is the serpent, definitely. And Lola, well, I don't think she's Eve exactly, but she might be Lilith, Adam's first wife, who turned out not to be compatible with him, which is another story from Jewish folklore. I bet you didn't know these pulp stories could be so deep, or at least that the bullshit about them could be. <laughs> anyway, if you'd like to have the entire X-1 episode, uh, email me at daveky at protonmail.com and I'll be glad to send it to you as an attachment. And now for more technology news, back to PQ River. Oil me, oil me. Oh, that was great. That was just fabulous. And um, there's nothing like the Overnightscape Central. And uh, we have the greatest contributors that there ever were i mean and if you haven't heard dave's sermons um i would heartily recommend that you make some time to listen because it's just no we're not talking about boring it's just give it a shot and it's right on onsug.com where uh Dave in Kentucky, and up the, our upcoming um, contributor, Chad Bowers, uh, can be heard uh, uh, on a quasi-regular basis, anyhow. Um, and uh, yeah, Chad Bowers from the incredible True Facts of Space is here with uh, uh this should be an interesting take on technology in fact i would almost guarantee it you know the first technology that really fascinated me was these mattel whizzer tops w-h-i-z-z-z-e-r they were a classic top style of toy only instead of a spring that you'd wrap around the top you'd had a friction motor inside and it was geared in such a way that the little rubber nib at the bottom of it that you would uh, 
you would hold the top in your hand, put the nib against the ground at an angle, and you would race it forward. And it would exchange the force of your hand, the, the torque, the, the power that you were putting into it. Um, it would gear that to a high speed. So it had a lot of resistance, you know, all these internal gears. And uh, it made it rotate really fast without having to push it really fast. So it just was a miraculous top. And, uh, you know, I'm surprised that it never was a big deal again. It seems like uh, that should have remained a classic toy. I remember my uh, brother and I had them. And then they were sort of in the bottom of the toy box for a while, and uh, they were in my Lego bag for a while. They were in a different uh, desk that I had as an adolescent. Can remember trying. Do you remember trying? Do you remember trying to do homework at your desk, just failing because of? Uh, Everything inside the desk was much more interesting than the homework, you know. How the stapler worked. A roll of stamps. A pin. A trinket with a thermometer built into it. This kind of stuff. Do you remember those small uh, swing line staples? I remember them as being about the size of my pinky. And the ones I had were red. And the word swing line was uh, in script and sort of a gold foil embossment on this plastic. It was good for stapling up to say five or six sheets of paper. And, you know, after that, it was a, a battle of force between the strength you could muster and uh, the bendability of the metal within the stapler. Yeah, I had those small staples. They, uh, they were like staples for kids, I guess. You know, that or, or something you could put in your uh, your cigarette uh, bag or your lipstick purse. I guess it was uh, a travel stapler. Maybe for the notary public on the go, you know, it was a little travel stapler. They could wear it around their neck if they wanted. I had a Tyco race set. I actually had several. And I know they were several different ones because of the different uh, ways in which the tracks went together. Some of them had these uh, two little buttons in the middle you would push down, and that would depress a little piece of plastic that would slip up under the other block, and it would pop back up and hold it in place. Then I think some of the older Aurora tracks sort of had these little grippers out towards the outside edge. Uh, they had a little hole on the top of either side. That was my sets. I had Tyco sets and I had Aurora sets. If you remember those um, slot car sets, which uh, were huge in America in the 70s. I think they stayed popular in England with their Skelectric, but I don't know why we didn't have anything like that. You know, We just had these HO size uh, Tyco sets. And you basically had the Aurora Pancake Thunderjet engines, or you had the Tyco Micro Minis that were uh, the inline engines. But in either case, the track worked for both. The track had a positive and a negative metal strip to the left and right, 
of each of the two slots. And then if you looked underneath the car, there were these little metal pads on springs. And those springs would keep the pads held down against the metal tracks. And eventually you would run it so much you would, uh, you know, you'd burn a hole right through the middle of the pad. It was thin, conductive metal. Yeah, I remember that. Sent the power through those little pads into the little motor inside the car. Now, most of the time, the uh, the controllers for these were resistor-based, meaning full power is coming into the controller, and then there are resistors inside which are burning off the excess power as heat. And the more you pull on the trigger, the more power that flows through to the track and the less heat that's generated in your hand in the controller. So it's cooler to go fast. Now, of course, uh, a lot of modern work different. Modern ones, a lot of devices. Wait, wait right here, son. Are we recording? Yes. Yes, we are recording. You know, a lot of uh, devices like uh, your dimmer switches, they used to use resistors as well. But now, typically, the technology today, you know, it's all about pulse width modulation. And basically, that means you're, uh, you're turning things on and off really fast. So if you turn a light switch on and off a thousand times a second, and then every third one of those you send power through, the effective light is dimmed. So that's basically, that's how they do the new controllers too. The more modern uh, electrical controllers or smart controllers, they've, uh, they've got technologies inside of them, like the COVID virus, for instance. So, anyway, did you... Uh, did you have one of those cars? Because I sure did. I, I liked them. I liked taking them apart. And uh, I remember dissecting them and uh, putting different pads on them. Even changing the little plastic gears on the rear wheel. Some of the uh, older Aurora models had a worm gear back there. It was sort of a, a gear came straight out the back of the, the motor. And... Uh, no, maybe that was an early Tyco, because I know the Auroras were the pancake style, where the motor was spinning uh, sort of uh, around clockwise if you look down at the car from the top. You know, whereas the Tyco cars, if you looked at them from the back of the car, looking at the back of it, you can imagine the the motor spinning around that axis. But but the worm gear coming off the back, you could put a different size gear on there and get get different gearing. You could uh. You could put more powerful magnets inside the body, and that would tend to help pull themselves towards those metal electrical tracks. The pads, of course, you could adjust. Hell, if you wanted to, you could uh, you could take extra weight out of the device by cutting weight out. You know, make it more lightweight. It's a lot of a lot of fun with those uh, Tyco electric racing sets. Sometimes, however. Sometimes we invent things and then we forget that we uh, invented them. Famously, perhaps infamously, I invented the ability to untoast bread 
and this is something that I've uh, been called upon to demonstrate more than once but less than four times. However, for you in the future, I will demonstrate this talent. One such uh, thing was, uh, you know, the English were big into the Navy. They had a big Navy. They were the big stick when it comes to navies, you know. One of the English captains back in the uh, 1700s, he noted that fresh fruit prevented scurvy. It, it was fantastic. It, it was a huge discovery. Um, you know, it just didn't go anywhere. It was over a hundred years before the Royal British Navy uh, adopted the policy of we got to have some fresh fruit on board so all these people don't die of scurvy. Scurvy's bad news. Have you ever seen a case of scurvy? No, you probably haven't. It's kind of uh, one of those things that just doesn't happen unless you're isolated and just don't have any vitamin C for a long time. Another thing that uh, should have, could have been invented, you know, all the should have, could have's. About a hundred years prior to Edison building the phonograph, everything that would have been needed and the technology behind it was fully understood by many people experimenting in such devices. There just was not a need until the telegraph was invented and then telephony then there became a need to record and document these things, then the invention. And think about this. Let's go back. Let's go way on back. Let's go way on back to way back when. I didn't even know you. You couldn't have been too much past 10. I ain't no psychiatrist. I ain't no doctor with degree. But it don't take too much high cue to see what you're doing to me. You better think. Think what you're trying to do to me. If uh, Hero, that was a guy's name, Hero, you know, Greg, Phil, Hero, uh, Hero of Alexandria, there's a sandwich named after him, he invented this thing, which was kind of a gadget and a toy, and he showed it off to people. It was a sphere with a spout facing one way, and then the bottom of a spout facing another, and you put water in it, put a fire underneath it, and the damn thing starts whizzing around as, uh, as fast as it can, you know, before it breaks loose of its hinges. It was steam power. You could have coupled a gear to that and you could have done real work with it. And here's the thing about that. That would have given... Steam would have been a component of the early Roman Empire. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how things might have been different if we had steam power that long ago? You know, with these technologies, you, you invent one thing and then that causes another. You know, you invent steam power, you start traveling to distant lands and distant places, the world gets smaller, knowledge is shared more, other inventions start to pile on, you see things people are doing and you mention it to others. It's, uh, it's a remarkable thing, and then the inventions that it requires because of steam power, well now you need to make mechanical things, and if you need to make mechanical things, now accuracy is needed, so you start building devices that can measure more accurately. And when you start measuring more accurately, you start discovering more things. It just sort of builds on itself, you know? Check this out. The paint roller. I've used one. Via Garibaldi in Genoa, Italy, in the 1500s, 
there's a room there that was painted with lamb's wool paint rollers. It wasn't invented again until the 1900s. It's over 300 years. Paint rollers. Simple enough. Da Vinci in the 1400s. Human-powered flight. Yeah, his device was too heavy, but the concept was right. And like everyone else, if he started messing with it and would have tested and made it a little better and a little better, he would have gotten there. There was nothing holding them back. They had the materials. They had the ability. It just had to be put together. Now think about this, you know, flying around in the 1400s. Good God, what would that have changed? Now here's another thing. This is crazy. You've probably heard about the Baghdad battery, right? It's a simple voltage-producing battery from about the year zero. There's actually devices like this much earlier. Some of them used to cause a shocking sensation to prevent to sort of sell people on the idea of uh, supernatural powers or spirits. You know, this was the sort of parlor trick that someone like Merlin would do. So he'd get free cake and bread and, uh, you know, free bed and breakfast service from the king. But the deal is, as you think about that, if you went back in time and you had that Baghdad battery, they also had copper, and they were able to draw it into wires if they would have pulled on it. It's not that hard. You could have woven the copper into wires as long as you were willing to make. You could have attached that battery to them, and you could have turned the voltage on and off, and by encoding information in a on-off code of some type, you could have sent information, telegraphy. Imagine that. Telegraphy in the year zero. What would that have done for sharing information? Concrete invented by the Romans, and then forgotten for a thousand years. Did you know in 1912, 40% of all the automobiles in the world were powered by steam. 38% were powered by electricity, battery power, and 22% were on this messy, smelly gasoline business. Of course, energy density... You know, that's why gas is still there, if you, if you wonder at all. You know, if you say to yourself, hell, uh, the uh, internal combustion engine was invented a long time ago, therefore we're using really old technology. Well, of course we're not at all, because the modern engine generates 200 horsepower, yet gets 40 miles to the gallon, uh, and releases almost zero pollution. So, you know, it's, it's not the same thing, but... If you think about it in a certain way, you could be led to believe it were the same thing. Now here's something exciting. This is this is something I invented in the 70s and I forgot about it until uh, I was writing this list down of stuff I wanted to tell you about. And it's themed USFL football helmets in your favorite team colors with your favorite team designs on the helmets. And they're made and designed for your goldfish to wear in the tank or the bowl. Not only will these officially themed helmets share your passion for the uh, USFL, but it'll help that uh, delicate upper brain pan of the goldfish. Imagine a goldfish charging the line or uh, going for the quarterback sneak. 
daring to dream big and going for that ultimate Hail Mary leap of faith out of the bowl into the great unknown. You know, all these scenarios are possible with these uh, goldfish helmets. Your friends are going to be envious of you managing your aquatic sports club. Imagine yourself sitting in the owner's chair right next to the bowl, watching the big game on the television and watching your fish reenact your favorite plays. Perhaps you'll try our super speed and power performance enhancement drops. Or you might choose to just play the game clean. It's up to you. You're the manager. You're in control of the action. Themed USFL football helmets. Every team, every design, every color, sized specifically for your goldfish. Now here's a, a thought for sore eyes. Once I had a refrigerator built by Samsung, and it's the only refrigerator, perhaps the only major appliance I only I owned for like a year and a half, and uh, and then I sold it just to get rid of it because I hated the ice maker. It was horrible. It jammed up all the time. It froze up. Uh, it made a mess. It would leak. It was a general nuisance. It was a... You remember that kid that had a TV show named Webster? Imagine if he were uh, like hyperactive and blind and ran around, you know, pissing on things. And, and he also like tore the walls up. That's what it was like... Uh, having this refrigerator and so I replaced it with a general electric and everything's been golden since but it had an ice maker inside of it and uh, you know something like an ice maker it could be more complicated than you were thinking you know it's got a timed valve inside that lets the water in and they're smart they made it so that if the power cuts out the valve is shut shut with a spring now, if you apply power, it'll open the valve and let the water out. It lets a predetermined amount of water into this little cold tray, and the ice freezes. And once it's frozen, another timer or control circuit applies just enough heat to create a thin film of water between the tray and the ice cube. Then a rotating pusher pushes the ice over the edge and it falls, and the Crispin Glover's beetle-driving, hat-wearing lap. Then it refills again. Yes, it does. So you might be familiar with uh, MP3s. You might be listening to an MP3 right now. The dream of the MP3 began in the 1970s. It was the dream and goal to send high-quality music digitally over telephone connections. Research and development of all these technologies remained academic only until about 1987, when the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg and the Fraunhofer Institute joined forces, and they were doing research for the EU-sponsored Eureka Project, and this is what paved the way for Europe's wonderful digital audio broadcasting service, DAB. It's probably why most European homes have a DAB radio on their counter. 
It's, uh, it's kind of like XM, but it's all over the air. It gives you all that extra information and stuff. But they created the first milestone, and it was LCATC codec. It allowed for real-time encoding of music. It existed prior to that only on large supercomputers. And it took very high-performance computers hours just to work the technique. Now this brought it into real time, able to happen as it was playing on a much less expensive computer. The next development was in 1988. The development of Optimum Coding in Frequency, or OCF. For the first time, it was possible to encode music in good quality at 64 kilobits a second and a mono signal. OCF was the real beginning to MPEG standardization. In 1989, the Motion Picture Experts Group, MPEG, an international standardization organization, was planning to introduce some new audio standards. OCF was thrown into the ring. MPEG received 14 other coding proposals from other universities and research facilities. The participants were encouraged to work together, and what came out of that were MusicCam, and that was the Institute of Broadcasting Technology and Philips Corporation, and then ASPEC, which was Adaptive Spectral Perceptual Entropy Coding, and that was by the Fraunhofer Institute and the University of Hanover, AT&T, and Thomson Electronics. Now, following that, they worked together a bit, Musicam and Aspect, and they came out creating three distinct coding techniques. Layer 1 would be a low-complexity variant of Musicam. Layer 2 would be a Musicam coder. And Layer 3, later renamed MP3, would be based on Aspect. The technical development of MPEG standard was completed in December of 1991. Bernard Grill said the crucial success came in 92 when their technology was incorporated into the International Standards Organization MPEG standardization format in the face of international competition. They demonstrated with tests conducted by independent institutions that their technique was technologically superior to all the rest. Layer 3, which was the most efficient of the three codecs, is instituted into commercial applications all over the spectrum. In 1995, it received its current name, and it was unanimously selected in an internal poll by Fraunhofer Associates, and the .mp3 was added to the end of the files. You know, the era of transportable MP3 players began shortly after in 98. Rio Diamond Multimedia in the U.S. and Seihan Information Systems in Korea produced MP3 players. Decreased cost of storage, the proliferation of the Internet, more powerful computers. MP3 had come at just the right time. Not long after the development, 
computers got more powerful, internet access got more widespread, and Fraunhofer Institute in 95 put the MP3 file extension on it. And, uh, and here's what they told people back then in 95. This is, uh, this is direct from the horse's mouth. Hello. Hello, everybody. In the light of overwhelming consensus of all survey participants, the file extension for ISO MPEG audio layer 3 has been decided as .mp3. That shall mean we should no longer use .bit suffixes on any upcoming web pages, shareware, demons, demos, demons, to diamonds, Atari games, etc. There's a good reason, believe me. So there we go. But, 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 see, I've told you some stuff, but I haven't told you how it works. Uh, so I, I think this is neat. This is how MPEG Layer 3 works. Let's start off by just saying that uh, when you're modeling human sound or sound for humans, you can throw everything above 21 kilohertz out because humans can't hear above 21 kilohertz. Also, they can't hear below 20 hertz. So right off the bat, you just chop everything out but that. Now, we want to start emphasizing. And we can emphasize or de-emphasize the quiet sounds. So anything that's quiet, you can save it at a much lower bit rate because people aren't going to hear it in as much detail. Now here's the other part. Temporal masking. Any two sounds or more that occur within milliseconds of each other, humans will only focus on the loudest one. We've been evolutionarily designed to do this because our brain had to get maximum results while budgeting energy usage. You know, like crazy. There's only so much energy. So our brain developed its own compression technique, so to speak. It's kind of like when you see things that aren't there. It's because, you know, your brain's like cheating all this stuff together. Um, now, now, another technique of MPEG Layer 3. So anyway, with the sounds close together, you just do the loudest one. You throw everything else out. Now we come to minimum threshold. In a sound, there are lots of other sounds. And all the quiet ones you hear in less detail. So you might choose just to throw those out. Get rid of those too. Anything below a minimum threshold just gets thrown out. Bit rate, bit depth, sample management. We've done all of this, but it's still a pretty big file. When we re-encode the data down to 16 bit from the highest quality digital recordings, which are 24-bit usually. A 24-bit recording has 256 times more quantization levels than a 16-bit recording. What am I talking about? Well, think about a smooth waveform. Can you picture a sine wave? It looks like a hill and then a valley and then it goes up a hill again. The, the highest point's the peak, the lowest part's the trough. And that's how all waveforms work. If you want to represent that wave, you could chop it up into little pieces or domains of time. 
So our waveform going up and down instead of a smooth line, let's convert it into stair steps. And those stair steps go up with the wave and then come down with the wave. At 24 bits, the recording is assigned every moment you, you divide it into, however many moments you divide it into, which is going to be our sampling rate later, you can assign a value between 1 and 16,777,216. That's how many different levels on the up and down you can assign to represent the wave. So we've achieved a great reduction now. We've, we've turned the waveform into these steps, and so far we've only covered the height of the wave. Now we need to chop it up into moments of time because we're going to be putting them one in front of the other. This is going to be our sample rate. This is how many times per second we're going to apply that value of 1 and 16,777,000. Now right off the bat, let's cut it down to 16-bit audio. So now instead of 16 million steps to represent the wave height, now we've only got 65,000 steps. Still plenty, right? So we're going to do a value of 1 to 65,536 at every instant in time or every sample. And then most commonly, we sample at 44.1 kilohertz or 48 kilohertz. You got to know, in signal processing, there's this thing called the Nyquist frequency. And Nyquist was this guy that way before we had digital stuff, he was figuring out if you converted audio into digital, he was figuring out what would be the amount of samples per second required to capture a given frequency. And it turns out that your capture rate has to be twice the frequency. So if you want to capture sounds up to 20,000 kilohertz, you'd have to sample at at least 40,000 kilohertz. It's always double. So they went with 44.1 for reasons of clock speed. It turns out that half the sample rate will always represent the highest frequency you can accurately represent without distortion. So with 44.1, we can go up to 22,050 hertz, which is way high enough, you know, because humans at their best can hear from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. And that's when we're young. You know, by the time you get to be 20-something years old, you're down to 19. By the time you're 30, maybe you can only hear to 16 kilohertz. It's, you could chop this stuff down a good bit more if you were doing it for our old ears. So anyway, we're, we're applying a value now between 1 and 65,536, and we're applying that height value in time from left to right 44,100 times a second. And then we're plotting the position of all those points, and we feed it to this specially designed chip called a digital-to-analog converter, and it's going to convert those mathematical point values back into a waveform. Which is kind of funny when you think about it, because, um, you know, quantization of music from a, from a pure waveform to a distinct entity is almost exactly the way the universe works, where you have these waveforms, but the moment, moment human consciousness looks at them, 
they collapse into a particle. And you know that they can't be a particle and a wave. They've got to be either one. But the moment consciousness gets involved, the waves collapse into particles. So here, this digital analog converter, it's going to turn our particles back into waves. Pretty interesting, huh? So now we just got to set a limit. We've got all this data, and now we just got to say, well, I've got all this data, but because the line speed might be X, Y, or Z, we're going to set a limit. 128 kilobits per second, for example, is one of those limits. 256 kilobyte MP3, that's another, that's a bigger limit. Because if you and I shot our entire wad of information of a 16-bit audio depth, uh, sampled at 44,100 times per second, that comes out to 1,411 kilobytes a second of data. So without setting the limiter, that would be the size of all MP3 files. That's just too much. So we convert it down, and our MPEG codec throws all those tricks we were talking about earlier uh, into the mix, and it just whips those files down to size. Yeah, the magic codec. The magic codec of audio love that even brings you, I mean, the entire Ansug. It wouldn't exist without this MPEG Layer 3 magic. And um, I, I, I had the basics, but I, I, I am appreciative that uh, the incredible true facts of space came in and properly instructed me how this all works and worked I just have no idea otherwise. I mean, like the whizzers. I mean, I knew there was something inside of those things. Those tops were... Uh, uh, that was remarkable. And I, too... I think the problem with the whizzers were... And it was a simple problem. Some people got their hair caught in that little end of that... And when that top got going there I bet you that could really hurt number one I think the top would just come flying at your head and then hit you uh, yeah I just kids can't be trusted with anything they can give concuss them that easily this is what happened to lawn darts and many other things of that ilk uh, certain technology I mean it's like drones I'm really surprised that we've lasted this long and there hasn't been like a lot more accidents with people being clever and you know going over other people or near other people with this device that I I just don't trust them. I, I know they're a lie. Yeah, I know. Just to, to, I don't that please don't fly one too close to me. It'll make me very uneasy. Um, and the, the mystery of the small staplers and why kids were given the one that they're just teeny tiny staples that can only put a few pieces of paper together you see that was uh, done to keep juvenile manifestos brief you could only do a x amount of pages and kids write real big anyways so you know six pages stapled together their manifesto you're not going to get very far of course now with digital all bets are off uh, writing on paper and typing and digitally storing stuff uh, and i do both 
I mean, some things I still write by hand out of habit. Technology, schmechnology, um, there is the, the basic technology of being able to have words that, one, flow through my head, and I can speak them, and I can write them down, and they can be read back. Now, now that's technology, baby. And uh, speaking of great technology... Uh, Frank Edward Nora is in the house, he'll literally be in the house, I think, yeah, in less than 24 hours. This is really building up, and, uh, oh, yeah, and we got to stay tuned, because uh, the next Overnightscape Central is going to be very different, and I will be explaining that at the tail end, and uh, depending, I may interject in the midst of Frank's adventure here, uh, but let's listen together and uh, let it flow. We're at a, an interesting place when it comes to technology, because a lot of the technologies that we live with, um, you know, there's breakthroughs, and then there's refinements. I think, look at the automobile, right? I'm sitting here on my porch on a very warm day, very hot day here. Uh, I was going to uh, hop on a plane and go to Texas today, but as you may have heard, I got COVID-19 and uh, the trip is off. But I, I'm still planning on going to New Mexico next Thursday. This is Saturday, yes. Um, you know, airplane is a... Uh, is a piece of technology that can take you somewhere very fast. But it's similar to the automobile, right? Think about the airplane, right? Uh, invented in whenever by the Wright brothers, 19-something. Uh, uh, a little over 100 years ago, right? The air, air uh, you know, lighter than, not lighter than, heavier than air travel. That's what they call it, yes. Because balloons have been around for quite a long time. Uh, but heavier than air, that is, you have a, a device that's heavier that's not using, like, uh, hot air or hydrogen or helium or anything like, like that that you actually can uh, make work using wings and motors and things. You know, it didn't... when You know, they were propeller-driven, uh, and it, they started reaching different milestones, passenger planes, transatlantic, transatlantic flights, etc., etc., but by, you know, let's say the 1950s, uh, we, we started having those, uh, the big jet airliners that could travel around the world, right? Now, meanwhile, that is, you know, 1950 is, is, is now uh, um, 72 years ago, right? Yeah. So what about the automobile? Well, from those, the early Model T, Ford Model T's, uh, they had to crank up, a little crank in the front, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, to today's automobiles, right, there's been a, a lot of refinements in, in cars. Those early days of motoring in the late 19th century, it was tough, um, right? It was not easy because not only were the cars themselves, you had to crank them up and they were very, very primitive, but what about roads? There, there really weren't a lot of good roads to drive on either, right? But by the 1950s, uh, the interstate highway system, for example, here in uh, New Jersey, the uh, the New Jersey Turnpike, 
part of Route 95, one of the interstate highways, um, really made it much easier to travel around the country, right? And the cars at that point had developed um, refined from those earlier cars, right? And they continue to be refined, fuel efficiency, and e even the car I have now, but compared to the previous one, all of the uh, detectors, it, it, you know, lane detectors. It'll tell you if, if you need to if you need to step on the brakes, if you're drifting out of your lane a bit, you know. But a lot of times it's very unfair because you know you you know to get you get to a stretch of road where the, it's under construction and the lines are all over the place. The, the car starts going beep 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 beep. What are you doing? It's not my fault, car. I, I, the, the, the lines are crazy because it's construction, you know. So, um, but since the 1950s, interstate highway system, car, automobiles have been fairly advanced. It's been incremental since then. So really, right, 72 years ago, 1950, right, what happened? What you know, Airplanes, cars, and I think there's a lot of other technologies which have kind of like did not reach a haven't doesn't has not had another breakthrough. If you want to say electric cars, well, no, they had electric cars even in the 19th century. So, of course, electric cars are getting are being refined. They're much better than they were obviously in the 1800s, though they did have them. Okay, so it, we're talking about breakthroughs, right? Absolute breakthroughs, things you couldn't do before, right? You know, and I think that in a number of ways, you know, like what about the home, right? The kind of homes we live in, there are structures that are built out of materials. Again, these houses, this, my house was built 100 years ago. It's, a, it's, it's fine as a house, you know. Um, I know there's modern building techniques, but it's still the same kind of house that we're living in. Um, electricity in the home. That was a long time ago, obviously, that that got introduced uh, way over 100 years ago in the late 19th century. Again, uh, electricity, electric lights, huge, right? What I'm trying to say is, you know, like there's a, an indoor plumbing, right? Uh, the refrigerator and the air conditioner, those technologies, absolutely amazing, right? I was talking to the guy that installed my air conditioner about, about how the technology was invented how you can move heat around using a, a, a certain type of uh, material, a, a gas, and it, it has to kind of flow through these pipes, these tubes, and be kind of pressurized and then depressurized. And I understood it when he was talking to me about it. But anyway, that is an amazing a breakthrough technology, refrigeration, right? No longer do you need to get the ice man to come, you know, so you have to bring a big chunk of ice to your house for your ice box. No, you, you can use anything that, that can produce mechanical uh, energy, right? So there are like kerosene-powered uh, refrigerators, right? Any, anything that can power a motor essentially can, can have refrigeration. Breakthroughs. But when has the last breakthrough been, you know? Um, because obviously it's with computers and the Internet and stuff, but, uh, but I mean... Uh, so much of what we live with, you know, like in my house, what are the technologies? Well, electricity coming in, alternating current. Again, that's real old, but it still works very well uh, to, to power things. Indoor plumbing, which is, is very, I mean, even like a toilet is, there's no, it, 
it's just mechanical, you know. Um, so plumbing is very, I mean, I know they've had plumbing for quite a long time. Um, indoor plumbing. I don't know why they didn't have it. Like, even when my grandpa, my grandmother was a kid in, in Pennsylvania, she was born in 1910. Everyone has still had outhouses. They didn't have indoor, indoor, uh, I don't know if they had indoor plumbing, actually. It was possible. It just was probably too expensive for them, you know. Um, you know, and we also, so what's coming into the house in terms of a utility? Well, uh, what, what used to be the telephone line, which is no longer, is the internet line now. Uh, you know, like the copper wires that ran the entire telephone system, which was a vital communications network. And communications is, I think, where there's been the most advancements and breakthroughs in, re in our time, right? Um, copper to the home, right? Uh, so you essentially have a copper wire going from your house to a local phone office that then interfaces it with a larger system. Um, it is essentially, uh, they've stopped doing it. So Verizon, which is the descendant of Bell Atlantic, which is one of the baby bells and AT&T system and everything else, they recently stopped, they stopped uh, with copper. In fact, uh, uh, an internet connection was uh, DSL. I actually had to get DSL at one point. It, it used the copper from your home uh, to the office with the idea that the quality of the connection through the copper wires from your house to the local office was had a far richer a data capacity than the entire phone system, right? The idea being that, um, you know, when you start when we started with the internet, we were using the existing uh, telephone system, right? You essentially were calling up, making a telephone call, using your modem to to attach to another modem somewhere, right? So you had to the data density had to tolerate the capacity of the system in general, the telephone system, which was designed to carry voice, not data necessarily, right? So, yeah, that was my father-in-law. He just stopped by outside the, in the front of the house just to... He can't come in, obviously, because we're quarantining still. I, we, I shouldn't be around other people until 10 days after I had first had symptoms, which will be Thursday when I'm hoping to go to New Mexico. I should be fine. I won't be contagious at all. Contagious. Uh, but, yeah, the... Uh, Right, so then the data, de so DSL worked in a way to uh, get your connection into a, uh, into a box, into the local phone service, so it didn't go into the entire phone system. They could then connect you to an alternate system, which was better for data, a DSL. It was a desynchronous line or something, I forget. But I got it, and then it stopped working, and the guy said, Somewhere between your house and the local office, there, there's a flaw. And he's like, listen, <laughs> it'll never work. And it never did work. Once, once my DSL went bad, I, I, nothing, nothing, was, nothing helped. I had to go back on dial-up for a while. This was back in the 90s. So right now I have uh, um, fiber coming into the house uh, from Verizon Fios. Fiber optic which is a very high density, uh, you know, the f 
those fiber, those glass fibers, whatever, they can. Uh, it's just light pulses of light that I guess are more efficient than uh, pulses of elect- pulses of electricity. And apparently, they're they're slowing down or stopping with the deployment of of fiber, even though fiber is so uh, such a great way. They have to dig up the street, or in this case, they did hang these on on the wires. But there's a whole n- fiber network all around. I remember when they were digging up the streets. Uh, to put it in, I mean, uh, I couldn't even get a cable modem, you know, through through the cable television until uh, later in the '90s. That was a technology that really exploded, of course, in our lifetime. Um, so, what else is coming into the house? Well, we also have this. Uh, uh, just on that other topic, I think that a lot of. Uh, Last the last mile of internet is now being taken care of. I think a lot of people have um, wireless internet in their home, you know. Uh, the same way you can, you, you know, your phone can become a tether point, which I did. Like when I first moved in here before the internet was installed, I just used my phone as a, as a hotspot, and it was kind of fine, you know, high-speed internet. So I think, so, I think that might be more of the future... Uh, you know, as far as the last mile, as long as you can get a good signal, instead of having you dig up the streets, do something more wireless. But I know a lot of people still don't have good internet. So anyway, um, also here, and I, I'm sure this is not the case in all parts of the world, but we have uh, natural gas lines coming in. This is quite an infrastructure where you are. Uh, there's pressurized. I think it's it's liquid in in the pipes, right? of this natural gas, which is very flammable, which you can use to, uh, uh, of course, generally use to heat things. Though I think it can be used for just about any... It can be used to cool things, too, you know, just generating... Um, I think you can have a, have a natural gas-powered refrigerator, I think. Yeah, you just need to convert it to mechanical energy, maybe. However you do that, you know. Get a little flame that heats up water... That then it becomes like a steam-powered system. You can use the steam to power a little turbine to generate electricity. God only knows what. Um, it's interesting because when it comes to, I mean, energy, of course, is a really big, big aspect of technology. Um, right? These days, you could use anything you can do with gas. You could do with electricity. You can generate heat with electricity, uh, electric heating you know, electric everything, except like uh, if you want an actual flame, like we have a gas insert in our uh, fireplace that you can't necessarily do that with electricity. You'd have to have simulated flames. Um, But yeah, I mean a lot. And then also I know that in New York City, for example, they have a, a network of steam, steam pipes and steam tunnels, steam that's delivered to buildings for heat. Like a steam system. Right, we don't. I don't have steam here. Um, but there seems to have been like this. The big technologies that we live with, very much have been the same at least since the 1950s, right? Transportation, especially, uh, I think has uh, there has not been a big transportation breakthrough. What are we thinking is the next breakthrough? Well, you know, we're always thinking that a new form of propulsion, right? 
uh, the, the flying saucers, the anti-gravity flying cars, things like that. Not a traditional flying car, which we know can be made, but it's not really. You always see these articles about flying cars, and I think it's these companies that are just kind of like investment scams, you know. They get all these investments, and then they go out of business, and whoever started up the company makes a ton of money. All the investors lose their shirts. Um, it's also, I guess, a matter of safety and you know, having people fly their own. People can hardly drive properly. There's so many car accidents all day long. You know, if, if people were flying around that aren't properly trained, you could imagine all the havoc that would happen. But, of course, flying cars are one of those cliche technologies by the year 2000 there will be robots and flying cars <laughs> it's interesting because the original Epcot Center and part of Disney World in Florida um, they had pavilions representing all these major technological uh, concepts right uh, you had of course the centerpiece spaceship earth the geodesic uh, sphere representing the world of communications and the history of communications from the earliest cave paintings to the internet and satellite communications, right? You have um, the world of energy, talking about, en you know, energy. Um, the world of motion, talking about transportation, right? The land, all about farming and our use of the land and production of food, which is a big thing, obviously. The living seas, which was uh, how we use technology to explore the seas and exploit the resources of the seas. Then there was the journey into imagination, where we, we learn about the, the human mind, which is perhaps the ultimate technology, right? The human mind. Uh, our ability to, to imagine things and to create things. All of these technologies started in the imagination. And then we have the, uh, the Life and Health Pavilion, which I think shut down a long time ago. Maybe it's still there physically. I'm, I haven't been to that place in a long time. I think the last time I was down there was like 96, down in Florida. Yeah, wow, that's weird. I should go back to Florida. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, Life and Health. So we're talking about all medical technologies and ways that we can um, improve our health and cure diseases, et cetera, et cetera, extend the life, human lifespan, all sorts of things, though they haven't really done much. I think lifespans, they say, are longer these days, but I don't know, in aggregate, how much of the modern world with all of its pollution and uh, unhealthy foods that people opt to eat. Uh, I don't know if people are less healthy now. I'm not sure. And then, of course, Horizons, my favorite ride, which was torn down around 99 uh, about our view of the future and our and our view of future technologies, which is always really fascinating because somehow we always tend to get the future technologies a bit wrong. Sometimes we're right, though. Um, but it is this sort of tapestry of um, what is technology? It's building tools to do things better. We know that human beings living in an ideal environment, right, um, in like a rainforest, let's say, where there's plenty of 
of food growing all around you, fresh water. Um, there's not really much you need to do in terms of technology. You can just, uh, maybe you want a, some sort of a hut so that it, when, it, when it rains, you don't get sopping wet. But you don't really need to too much. You don't really need clothes. You know, you can be a nude. You, you know, a lot of those uh, tribes, there's still a few of those tribes that have never had contact with the modern world. They seem to do some hunting. They have spears. They have some kind of clothing. They have some sort of housing. But they're able to get by, you know, without it, without technology. It's just certain areas, like when it gets real cold, like here in New Jersey, it's a place where it gets really cold. You need some kind of technology just to survive the cold winters, right? So you need the housing. You need fire. Fire, of course, is, is for heat and cooking, <clears throat> you know, and light. As it may be considered one of the earliest technologies. Fire! You know. Um, but beyond that, it feels like... Um, what are we using technology for now? Right? I feel like it's enabling a vast increase in the world population through technology. I think the question, though, is, is that something that is necessary or not, you know. I know overpopulation has been sort of one of these um, things that we're talking about, right? We don't really know how we got here or why we're here if it was all through an undirected natural process or if we were created for some reason through the uses of technology, beings with higher technology, which is what I would consider to be the more likely um, scenario of how we got here. Some people prefer to think of it as a the undirected natural process got us here through evolution. Some people prefer to think of it as a uh, mystical god created us here. You know, uh, no one knows. I, I think. A lot of people have their beliefs about how we got here. But when it comes to increased population, that's kind of a hard question. Is that something that's desirable? Or is it just a natural uh, outcome of higher technologies? That is, it's easier to keep more and more people alive on this planet. I'm not really sure what the answer to that is. I know what the answer to that is. I know that there's been a lot of um, speculations in the conspiracy theory world that the powers that be want to have less of a population. The number 500 million is bandied about as we have nearly 8 billion. That's a lot more than 500 million. So what, what else are we doing with our technologies? I think you could say that we're improving the quality of life for people, Right? So I think technology definitely seems to improve a quality of life, but it seems that in aggregate, some aspects of technology uh, are... Maybe it's not just the technology, it's just in the world I'm living in today, I don't know if people are happier. People are all stressed out. There's... Uh, 
you have to work to pay to live in, in the current system we have, which seems so counterintuitive that we should be using these technologies to ease the burden uh, of life on people and make people's lives easier. But we're not doing it for some reason. And that's a big topic on my show. Why aren't we doing it? Anyway, we have this uh, technology. We are constantly moving around in our cars, on airplanes, on trains, on buses. Is that, what is that accomplishing per se? I understand that moving people around is different than moving goods around, right? I mean, uh, the modern supermarket is made possible through a vast uh, transportation networks, right? The variety of foods you can get at your local store uh, only exists because of this, these technologies, which is definitely a good thing. But it almost seems that in an overall sense with all the technologies that we have, we're using them in a way that doesn't seem to be making people's lives easier or happier. Um, So then we get to communications, which is the uh, where we've seen the biggest, biggest increase. So what when we talk about communications, we're talking about, you know, what was uh, one person talking to another person across a distance, right? There was a time before the international telephone system where you had to uh, <coughs> send letters or send telegrams, right? The written word, which uh, which takes spoken language and distills it into onto uh, well a major technology, a paper, ink on paper, right? Before the telegraph, you had to. Uh, if you wanted to communicate with someone, for example, if I'm here in New Jersey and you're over there like in England and I wanted to communicate with you, I'd have to send you a letter and it would have to be taken across the ocean on a boat, right? So it's going to take a while. I imagine it would take a few weeks to, to get a letter across to, uh, to England to communicate, right? So that, the idea of the telegraph, which then was able to I don't know when the first transatlantic telegraph was. I don't know if it was accomplished through... I think it was accomplished by just laying a, a, a big wire across the ocean, basically, right? And then, at that point, you just, you know, you were using that... Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. Human operators were translating text into dots and dashes that were then being, by hand, again, retranscribed on the other end. When was that? All right, let me look up. Let me look this up using the this technology, pocket supercomputer connected to the worldwide computer network, which is pretty amazing. First, all right, my guess is it was in first transatlantic telegraph. I don't know, eighteen ninety. I should know this. Let's see, uh, eighteen sixty-six. I was off by a few decades. The British ship Great Eastern succeeded in laying the first permanent telegraph line across the Atlantic Ocean. Hmm. 
and then in 1901, the first transatlantic radio communication was, was established. Right, and uh, so we had that, and you know, the printed word, I mean, is a major technology, daily newspapers to, to get information to you, um, major technology. But again, like, um, these were well established by 1950, but since then, I would say that the computer, of course, has been the biggest story in technology, right? The computer that's able to, to uh, take information and break it down into a, a digital form, right? And then output it in various ways. Now, using, in, in conjunction with um, these communications networks, which are essentially wires, they still are wires that are have to be, uh, a, a ship has to sort of have a huge amount of wire and they just start going across these oceans and they let it go and it goes to the bottom of the ocean. That's still how it works to get all of these, uh, the data going through these, these wires. And that's why you, you can go to a website anywhere in the world now because of all these wires. And the internet allows you to, your, your message doesn't have to go through one wire. It can, go through, it can jump through many, many different wires, right? But I would say that, um, especially in terms of audio and visual communications, right? We went from uh, the print, of course, the big one, and then uh, in terms of audio, we have fairly recently in history, audio recording, uh, records, um, first those cylinders in the later 1800s, and then uh, phonograph records and tapes, and then CDs, and then it's all digital, right? Though vinyl records are back on the upswing. But uh, information being in the form of audio and visual information and then just in, in terms of data, right? Um, this is something that went from the earliest computers that were on networks, which were back in the, you know, ha that was happening in the 40s and 50s, um, to the point that it really hit the home. Home computers hit, I think, in the late 60s, right? The earliest home computers, early 70s. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, by the late 70s, early 80s, there was definitely home uh, networking where you could initially remember the modems looked yeah, you had to put a telephone like into the modem, like the like the, the the thing you used to hold up to your to your head. It had like a speaker and a receiver. You had to put that onto this device. And uh, you know, I I never I didn't have that when I was younger. I didn't really have a modem until a little bit later. Until in the early nineties, I had a modem. Um, and that was, you know, you just plugged it into the phone network. 
So when you were online, you couldn't make a phone call unless you had a second phone line basically installed just just for data. You know, and that's the thing that went like, let me find the sound effect. And somehow you had to hear this every time. It was so weird. You would actually hear that. And then it would... I don't know why you had to hear that. I, I mean, I guess just to let you know if it was working. Uh, it was kind of annoying, though. It was kind of a uh, scratchy, annoying sound. Um, but what, what we are here is register as white noise is just um, pulses of data being sent. Um, which is still what it's doing. What this phone is doing, it's wireless. This actually is a, is a radio. This, this little tiny pocket, I have a Google Pixel 5. You know, it has transmitters and receivers of a number of different sorts. Um, when this is on the 5G network, it's broadcasting out. A local tower can receive the signal from this phone. And this phone can get a signal from that, that tower. And of, but of course, the home Wi-Fi, which is the same thing, it's another kind of radio, is obviously more efficient and can have more density because it's a much closer thing, and it's using the Internet from the wire-based uh, um, fiber optics, right? But it's all kind of the same as the, the original telegraph. It's just... Um, it's, a, it's a wire that is... When you go ch -ch 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 -ch, on one end, you hear ch -ch 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 on the other end. And whatever you want to make of it, you know, that dots and dashes or pulses of information that can be converted back to digital data. So, I mean, one side note here, of course, is. And I've talked about this before, you know, the, the idea that each individual person now has access to all this worldwide information. Essentially, like, what is happening in all the parts of the world right now, um, you could find out about. But a, any one person is only able to focus on, like, kind of one thing at a time. So there's no way you could ever really go over everything that's going on in the world, even though... You could choose one particular thing and find out about it. That's why we use these aggregation services known as the news media to tell us, to provide us an overview of what's important that's going on in the world. Though, of course, that system is rife for abuse, and it seems it is being very much abused these days, right? And even if it's not being abused, it seems that most of the... Uh, the most negative and horrible things going on in the world, which in past times you wouldn't have found out about until much later, if at all, right? Uh, you're finding out about instantaneously. To, to feed the population of the earth with the, an aggregator of the worst things hap happening to 8 billion different people it, that might not be a good thing. I, I don't know. It's very strange, you know. 
And I imagine if you described our current system of this, uh, the internet, the uh, interconnection of people and information, if you t even if you talk to someone back in the 60s about it, or the 70s, they would say, well, has this created a whole new world of understanding and of sharing and of advancement? I think they would have anticipated it would. And I think it has in some, to some degree, but in general, the technology is being used to uh, seemingly to manipulate and control everyone through fear. And uh, it seems kind of unfortunate. But anyway, what is coming up with technology? What, is the, what are the next technologies? Well, the big one, of course, is AI, which I don't believe has really hit yet. I think the term AI, there has to be a name for what I'm referring to as next level AI, which is where um, computer systems can learn to perform tasks and, and perform calculations without being programmed by a person. They just are, they can learn to do it. We're not quite there yet, right? As I think we've discovered, what we do as human beings in terms of communications and even our tasks that we can perform are vastly complex and, the, and are, right, even the UPS driver driving down the street delivering packages, right, is utilizing a vast knowledge map that every person that grows up in the society gains by being part of the society, right? And that's evidenced by currently there's there's not robots driving the delivery vehicles and then getting out and picking up the packages and bringing them to your porch. Why not? Why can't uh, robots do that yet? The idea, I think, is that there's so many factors to be considered that no one can really program it properly. We need to create a learning system that just learns how to do it, can learn those billions or trillions of different rules, right? Making judgments and understandings because any unpredictable situation, right? A human being can kind of judge the situation, right? Driving cars on roads is a much lesser set of rules right there's with the existence of roads as we talked about earlier right there are clear spaces for car vehicles motor vehicles to go on right so self-driving cars your the car is on a road and it goes somewhere okay you're on a road is the way in front of you clear yes go you know um and there's something blocks your way stop you know like that's why they're saying that especially when you get to the interstate highways without lights right that uh, self-driving trucks really just need to follow a small set of rules to drive on an interstate highway from coast to coast right yes you uh, maybe there's detours but in general or a deer runs across the road. But in general, right, if there's something in front of you, slow down. 
or stop. If there's nothing in front of you, go and steer to stay on the road, right? That's a much lesser set. Still, we're not quite there yet, right? We're, we're right on the cusp of that. But delivering packages from the curb to someone's front porch or the, to their door involves a lot more variables, right? Um, where should you walk? You know, you don't want to, tr- if you're a robot, you don't want to trample someone's flower bed. There should be some sort of way of walking. Um, what about hazards? What about animals, children, items left uh, on the sidewalk, etc.? This is where I think, perhaps counterintuitively, the, the amount of um, of uh, variables become so much that it can't be programmed, which is why a learning system needs to be made. And I think that is going to... I'm not really sure what is holding that up at this point, right? But you need a system that can essentially... It has to sort of know everything that people know from the ground up, right? So you can't even really start to, okay, I'm going to program this robot to deliver packages. It needs to know fundamental aspects of our world and all the things that people know. All the things that just seem obvious to you, right? This needs to be built in. And there was that project Psych, CYC, that was popularized around 1990. There were articles about it where they were trying to build this knowledge map of everything that people know as a precursor to having uh, systems that can perform the tasks that humans perform. Apparently, that didn't really work out because it was being done by by hand. It was being done manually. The idea is that you need a system which uh, can create this base mind, for lack of a better term, that knows all the things that a human knows. We can't, it's too complicated to to build it by, uh, manually. We can just build a system that can build it, right? That's the idea. <clears throat> and the idea is that there wouldn't be multiple of these. Ideally, there would be just one. <clears throat> one massive system that has a knowledge map that is... Uh, seeking to understand the world at the same level as a human being understands it, right? From identifying sensory inputs that are visual, that are auditory, right? Pattern recognitions, and then just the interrelationship of things, right? If you might imagine a robot maid that is cleaning your house, Sweeping the floor, doing your dishes, doing your laundry needs to essentially know everything about the world to do those things, right? The same way a person could do it. Yes, we have a dishwasher. You still have to put the dishes in and take them out. It's just the task of cleaning 
it's just jets of water and, and a detergent and levels of heat in a programmed fashion. But beyond that, what goes in, what comes out, people still need to do it. I don't think that this, this kind of AI I'm talking about is not impossible, and I think it is quite doable, right? We're just trying to get a system that can understand the world, perhaps understand is the wrong... We're not saying this, this thing is going to become conscious. It just needs to be able to perform tasks in a satisfactory way. I think all of us could imagine a robot made doing our housework, right? And we could imagine it doing a good job and it doing a bad job. We just need to make sure that it, it does the tasks that are assigned to it well. And the idea is that this would essentially, this should be an, inter an interconnected thing where, right, the early robot maids will maybe screw up a lot, but they'll learn. They'll all learn from the mistakes made by uh, other instances of the robot maid, right? And so they should get better and better at doing things at, an in at a, a, a geometric rate. So um, you'll have a humanoid robot. The robots will be <laughs> driving a fire truck around. Uh, the robot, the robots will be about the same size and shape as a human being because, right, all of our homes and our structures and build everything is built at a human scale, right. We know there are human scale robots already, um, but thus far, there's no programming that can have them come into your house and do housework. I think that's coming soon, and that is going to be the biggest change in, in, in the technology that we've seen. Robots are just going to be the, the outer sort of representation of what's really going on inside. So, tasks performed by people in terms of anything you might think of as an office job, a paper-pushing job, these jobs should be able to be done by the AI uh, much better than a human being. And I know what you're saying, what everyone always says. We'll all be in the poorhouse. The robots and the AIs are going to take our jobs. That reaction, I think, has been programmed into us. Because the whole point of these technologies, as I said earlier, why are we not using our technologies to make everyone's life easier and better? Obviously, it does to some degree. This next step, if it actually happens and people are still suffering, it has then revealed that there's a very human factor, a desire to oppress present that is, uh, unless uh, you know, explained away, going to be a real sore point. Anyways... Just a few thoughts on a technology. Back to you, PQ. Quite. I mean, just the overwhelmment of all the information. And you think, oh, it's so complicated. But 
all of these things, you know, to, to create an AI that's functional, uh, it, it is very, very complicated, but uh, I don't want to underestimate the intellect of, you know, this person or that person, but we all know people who function and manage to get from one place to another and perform, well, I mean, nothing too complicated, but overall the sort of tasks that we would ask of a simple machine. And I, that, I don't know, it, it's really tricky because I don't, I certainly don't, we don't understand, I don't believe, how thought actually operates in our heads. I mean, we understand how we lay it out when we're writing the code for a machine, but uh, the the code in our head that makes our operating system, it, it, we have no idea. I have seen nothing that compels me in any way to think that there is some scientists somewhere, researchers, and they're really on it, and they know exactly, no, I'm just, all I get is overwhelmment, and so many factors, and numbers, and just just the creation of an operating system it, it, the involvement is beyond what I can wrap my brain around let's face it kids but uh, this was a fabulous show um, and cool too um, and uh, I, I do thank everyone who was here and participated in this, uh, you especially, because without ears, we're really in trouble. But Dave in Kentucky and Chad and Frank, uh, thank you for uh, putting it all together. And now, I, 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 I've been trying to think of something different we can do here on the Overnightscape Central. The topic for next week hopefully reflects this. And I am going. It, this will be in the post, uh, both of the show at onsug.com, because it's a little more complicated than our usual fare. And if this works, things could get it, it, a lot. It, I mean, it's, it's complicated. Uh, a little more too. Our uh, depth of uh, weekly uh, interactions. Uh, the topic for next week's show is called Surrealists 1. And indeed, uh, any interesting thoughts you have on surrealism and surrealists, it was a political movement and a social movement and sort of a philosophical movement, uh, I am learning and uh, finding out. And uh, they went so far as to do these inquiries uh, Andre Breton, who was one of the great writers of the Surrealist movement, sent out uh, questionnaires uh, along with other Surrealists to Surrealists and did these interesting surveys. And uh, I have picked one of these questions for us to address next week right here. So listen up and uh, see if I'm going way too far out or this is something that uh, tickles your brain. Can you say what was the ins the essential encounter of your life? How far did you think and do you think that this encounter was fortuitous, necessary, 
You know, in other words, uh, uh, how did you, how did and do you think that this was a fortuitous encounter, and uh, how was it necessary or not necessary, uh, if you feel that way? But surrealists won. Um, let's see what happens, and I'll have Frank here, and I may even, everything willing, have the artist Shaman Q and Twyla here, Shaman. They're both the shamans and Nawals, so uh, yes. Uh, perhaps I will be able to get everybody in that to address this in kind of a round table. And uh, any thoughts? I am hoping this will uh, inspire maybe even some people who haven't done anything around here uh, contributing for a while. And uh, well, let's see what happens because if this works, we can continue this line of inquiry on the Overnightscape Central and uh, see where this all goes. Oh, that sounds like fun to me anyhow. Uh, yeah. And uh, again, this, this was a great show. Thanks for being here. And uh, I'm going to get this thing posted because, again, I dragged it on till Wednesday. And um, as always, set the controls for the heart of the fun.